Hello and welcome to this month's Culture File Debate, where we're talking this time about play and, unavoidably, about its frenemy, work. So, and this this probably comes as information to uh, the people who aren't in Ireland. Here in Ireland, we were all invited again last week to work from home, unless that was impossible. The call may be reminded those wing FH of the information we gleaned last time the call went out about how we feel when work and play become, if not confused, then possibly fused. Part of this expresses itself in what the headline writers call the Great Renunciation, and others the Great Great contemplation, that inkling that workers have got a taste for play. For those lucky ones, there's a vision of recalibrating what we might get from work if it contained a little more of the quality of play, if it were more self-directed, more exploratory, more engaging. And what would it be like if play too came in exciting new flavours? But that little definition hardly describes the activities on which so much is resting. So we're going to spend some time on the culture file debate talking about serious play, what it offers to individuals and what it offers to societies faced with oceanic inequality, extremist politics and environmental collapse. We've got half an hour. That should be fine. Joining in the conversation, we have a panel who explore work and play, its functions and malfunctions. They are Ben Shepard, a professor of human services at New York School of Technology and author of Play, Creativity and Social Movements, exploring the past and future of play in social change. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm very good. Good to see you. Dance artist and teacher Avino D uses everything from puppetry to sculpture to think about movement and the body and is no stranger to Culture File, having told us previously about the inclusive improvisational movement class she founded called Dance Share. Hey, Avine. Hello. Good day to you. Where are you today? I am in Dublin, oh. in my bed. <laughs> so you're Wing FHing again, are you? Yes. <laughs> Matthew Cole, our, our next guest, is a postdoctoral researcher at the Oxford Internet Institute working on the Fair Work Project, which looks at the best and worst labour practices in the platform or what we call the gig economy sometimes. Hi, Matthew. Hiya, how are you doing? Good, thank you. And Louise Blackwell is an independent producer who's previously worked at Battersea Arts Centre, founded numerous organisations blending creativity and learning, and is currently working as a creative caretaker of Creative Crawley. Come in, Crawley. Hi. I'm not actually in Crawley today, but um, it's nice to see you. Who's doing the creative caretaking when you're not there? (laughs) I can caretake from afar sometimes. (laughs) So all of you have probably quite different ideas of play and indeed serious play. So maybe we could start with an image. I want to get an image of each of you at play. Uh, so, Avine, give us an image of what it's like when you're at play. Um. <laughs> ah, now that's very good. We have to describe for the listeners on the radio that... Uh, <laughs> Avine is using her elbows and uh, forearms to make shapes in front of her face, which uh, was quite expressive of play and a quite uh, ludic response to uh, talking on the radio. That's lovely. Thank you, Avine. <laughs> You're very welcome. I see Ben has gone for a wander, but he's heading back to his desk now. Ben, what, what, you, you, you just went and got a prop for your play. Well, I'm a social worker, and I just know that there's so much miserableism out there that I feel like we're in this miserablest age. So I'm trying to move beyond, you know, the means of necessity if possible. That's so that's that's our play. I mean, 
naked bike rides, gardening, poetry, poetry in the streets, chit-chatting to myself, singing in the shower. I mean, we need more of it. We're not cyborgs quite yet, but we're getting close. <laughs> but, mm, some more than others. But you didn't show us the prop. What have you got there in your hand? I just like to pick these up whenever traveling. I was in Tokyo, and there were um, one of the things I love about Tokyo is they do everything on the computer. Everything on the computer. So this doll kind of reminded me of humanness and imagining a different kind of humanness. But we have to play. We have to reimagine. That's what it's all about right now. It's a little baby boss with a mohawk for those uh, not streaming into the live stream. Louise, where are you when you're at play? What are you doing? When you asked me uh, to think of an image, the first image that came to my head of recently, I was um, in a, a disused restaurant setting up for a, a Bollywood dance workshop. And me and the artist Saj Raja, who were going to run the workshop, we were being playful with the space. So we were, we were hanging saris from the wall. We were making kind of powder paint patterns uh, for Diwali on the floor. And we were having a right laugh and playing a lot as we were setting up that space but also I feel like here I am feeling quite playful with a blanket over my head and a sock over my phone talking <laughs> talking to you so you know I'm playing as we speak I think good well we hope to carry that on uh, calling Berlin now Matthew your image of yourself at play yeah I mean I think there were a lot more images of myself at play when I was younger uh, it's hard to find time to play as an academic these days but I would have to say any activity that's far away from like market mediation, career type activities would would be play for me. And th those these days usually involve just uh, writing like poetry or prose. But when I was a bit younger and uh, less prone to injury, uh, skateboarding was my ideal form of play because it it forces you to rethink space. There's some images of play, and I suppose one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was the idea of serious play and when uh, play had a purpose. And I thought maybe, Ben, you know, it's worth acknowledging that, that this is not th this uh, kind of useful side to play is not at all a new thing. It's, it's actually something with a, a deep history. Maybe you'd tell us a little bit about that. I mean, Heisinger wrote, wrote his uh, study on the play element and culture, Homo Ludens, um, after World War One, and I think we've been looking at this play experience for a long time. Anybody that ever works with kids outside sees, uh, sees, like a couple of years ago during one of the storms, the kids outside went went outside. There was a tree that had fallen down, and they spent all day, you know, from three to five, making forts and working and uh, reimagining a sort of social world around the tree and. Uh, it was pretty serious stuff. I mean, you know, jumping off the tree limb and, and things like that. But as I was watching them, I thought about Heisinger's definition for play, which is an activity outside of ordinary life. Uh, it's not serious, but at the same time, it's utterly absorbing, um, absorbs the player intensely and utterly. Its aim is both, it's accompanied by a feeling of fun and joy and getting away with it. And I think that's what we all need to feel like is occasionally we can get away with it that feeling of running away and actually not getting caught right feeling like you're you're alive for just a, just a second i think for kids you know in the united states i don't know about the rest of the world but they know that we have this phenomenon called a uh, uh, i think it's helicopter parenting where there there's every bike ride everything is accompanied by a parent so if you fall over a parent will help you and yet 
when those kids are in the park playing on their own, making up their own rules, they're problem solving and creating executive function and I think actually growing and learning how to navigate the social world in their own way. So now in these schools, you see sort of the neo neoliberal turn on education and they say, we don't need playtime. These kids should be preparing more for, for the tests. And so you get, you know, I mean, you get dumber kids and I'm, I'm one of them. So I, you know, I'm one of those people that went through that. So I understand the phenomena. So I think we need to have a little more free time. The, the division there instantly crops up between, you know, what, what uh, adults do and, and what adults uh, should do and what children yeah. do. And I suppose you've, you've written a lot about how adults incorporate this sort of uh, ludic sense into activities that, you know, are, I suppose, what we would call mature. And that is to kind of see if you can affect and build your world in, in quite active ways, but engaging the sense of play to do well, so. I think, I think adults have long recognized some of the adults haven't always uh, done the right thing. I, and I think about... Uh, I think about the hundred years since uh, the collective suicide of World War One, and we had these play-based movements that grew out of that. If grown-ups are about collecting, engaging in collective group suicide between two sides over a bit of land, maybe this, if this is the rational world, then maybe we can embrace another kind of a world, a world that is absurd. And so you see Dada, and uh, did Dada ever talk to you about wor work? No, Dada didn't. Dada, it's all about another way of being. The surrealists thought about another way of being, beyond means of necessity. And I think uh, our creative free minds, our non-alienated minds, feel connected with other people. And it's not to say it can't be violent. I mean, it, it can be all these things. But I think we need a little more of that abundant feeling. The, everyone's been depleted looking at the screens. We're going to become miserablest boring characters. And I don't think that helps our imagination. And I don't think it's going to help us deal with climate change or create sustainable urbanism if we don't play a little bit, if we don't get on our bikes and ride. Yeah, I mean, in your book, you particularly mentioned Marcuse was interested in in this idea. You know, he says something about maturity is, you know, what the establishment does and that the wisdom, the other wisdom is obviously therefore going to belong to clowns and children. And that's kind of the wisdom that adults lose. And it's a theme that runs through his work tracing Schiller all the way through the Eros and civilization. And then Eros, and then the big one is, is one-dimensional man. And I think we're now, when we look at our lives, I teach on screen. I go to church service on screens. My kids were on screens for a year and a half. It's a lot of, I mean, literally the one-dimensional, I mean, we are being flattened out. And so how do we become three-dimensional, big, sexy, three-dimensional bodies again out there in public space? I think that's an abundant challenge. And I like in last year after George Floyd died, we saw a flourishing of bodies in public space. And some of what they were doing was playing. They were grieving and crying and playing and wearing masks and being smart about public space. But they were reoccupying public space and it was abundant and loving. What Ben mentions there, Avine, is particularly the business of bodies occupying space and and what that means in terms of play. And I, I think that's the, that's the the area that we're kind of almost familiar with re-engaging with play because, for instance, we had another one of these programmes a few months ago with choreographers and dancers and they seemed very aware of the information that dance had about playing in the public in the public space and about being a body in public space. D tell us a little bit about how your work helps people re-engage with public spaces or, or, or present their bodies in public spaces. Like a starting point is to work with yourself in your own space, like in your own body. 
to re really engage with all parts of your body and feel like connected with your feet, your toes, your organs and how you breathe. And then this, when you like feel comfortable and feel all the space that you can have within, you kind of move and start to direct it outwards as well. And this can be perceived in like through objects or through the space that you're in or within with other people. And it's about listening a lot, listening to what comes within you and what's happening outside. If you're in the studio or if you're outside in a park or in the streets, using this improvisation of whatever comes up, but to really feed into whatever this is of like, uh, say, an image or a bird comes and then you kind of try to embody a bird or try to embody um, a different evolving creature or something that's coming, like to really feed it and not give in too much to like doubt or like how does this look? What are people like thinking? It's just more of really how you feel and to allow the body to kind of be the, the boss of everything. It's important then that that language isn't what that that what that occupation is about. That it's about trusting that there is something uh, in your body that you can speak directly to. Yeah, because with language, it's um, it's just like stamping a name on something rather than I th I think language can only go a certain way, and you it's really more the feeling of it. Uh, Louise, there's a lot involved there in trusting the experience you're uh, you're about to to undergo. You know, um, Aileen there is going to is going to be leading you into areas where your linguistic abilities are expected to fall short. You have to sort of find uh, a way of trusting that experience. Does that also operate in when you're trying to work in civic arts? Yeah, I think it, it connects with a few different areas that I work in, really. I mean, it, for me, like playing and like what Ben was connecting with was, was saying is like how much you're willing to take risks and where the kind of line is and how far you'll go. And so how in, in a public space, in a civic space, an artwork or a series of tiny interventions that are playful can encourage people to slightly step out of their comfort zone. One of the things that we're, we're doing in Crawley at the moment is a, a commission by a brilliant artist called ba Baker and Borowski, and we've made a 60-metre artwork called Graphic Rewilding, which is a huge series of flowers. It's on a wall, but it spills onto the floor and benches and bollards and bins around the civic space. And, and it's really, for me, like that's a kind of very gentle way of inc inviting people to be playful in public space. You, you have this idea of uh, thinking about a town as a creative playground which has a kind of uh, slightly, um, it might interfere with the traffic is the first thought you've, <laughs> you know, the concerns of civic organisation. I mean, public spaces aren't for cars. You know, we don't, cars, that's privatisation of public space. So I think we have to get, get rid of the cars so we can do more of what Louise is talking yeah, about. Yeah, but I think there's also something that's happened, like, you, you know, you were talking about the kind of Black Lives Matter movement, Ben, and, and but there's something like I experienced in the summer, there's a tentativeness, off, like so we did some outdoor dance performances and and encouraging people to dance in public space but there's a kind of there's a bit of a tense because of what's I think because of the pandemic and what's and the ownership people aren't used to feeling ownership over public space so how do we break like taking cars away from the roads is one way but you know how do we kind of encourage that I I was on a mic literally saying you you are allowed to dance in this town square you can do it and then some, you know it's just being given permission sometimes as well 
people need to mourn. They need to grieve. They've gone through a lot. They need to cry a little bit. We need to sing together. We like, but to feel our bodies together, you know, I mean, and I'm not saying touch each other in uninvaded ways, but be together. And I, I think then people can get that courage to have a, because when I, I'm talking about play within a continuum of tragic comic continuum, there's lots of tragic things, you know, and I think we have to celebrate the joyousness of it, but we also have to grieve the sad parts of it. We see it all in public space. Matthew, the reason I suppose we're having a, a conversation about work and play, you know, using the term serious play is because those words are so much kind of carriers. They are actually remarkably fluid and flexible and, and are, all, are always contested at some level. Yeah, so I guess I want to come in maybe a bit on how the the concept of serious play actually operates in uh, an economic context and particularly in the employment relation and, and in work. What we've mostly talked about is the sort of artistic or um, play as resistance, the play as a sort of saying no to various economic imperatives. But in the digital age and as we sort of are increasingly, our lives are increasingly mediated by different digital platforms, you have the introduction of different kinds of play in a sort of top-down way, largely through sort of gamification. Um, and so the, the concept of serious play is, uh, I mean, it's oxymoronic, but it's sort of, a lot of it was pushed by business school theorists and these kind of like human relation, human resource management scholars as a kind of way to structure their play in a particular direction towards creating new opportunities for the valorization of capital and profit making, right? So when we talk about serious play, I, I think, and particularly in game, gamification, we need to put it in this context. And in the context that we're, that we're operating is one in which these terms have largely been recuperated into a sort of market-mediated mode of, of, of action. So whether it be a career or whether it be you know, trying to come up with a new creative idea that you can sell. This is drawing on serious play, but then using it in in a way that is largely like overdetermined by imperatives of capital accumulation. I want to sort of introduce maybe a bit of tension here between this like recuperation, which is a situationist term, you know, a situationist, um, we're drawing on both surrealism and Marxism to, to use play as a as a form of resistance and disruption but at the same time there was when when you have the gamification of everyday life you know to sort of use a situationist phrase like the revolution of everyday life from from that to the gamification this is an area in which spaces of play become pushed out of the realm of possibility you don't have time to play because you have to work 60 hours a week you don't have the time for creative activity or even just unstructured creativity of socializing that can lead to play with the ideas of games. And, you know, we're on our phones all the time with, with apps and you can, you know, achieve badges or you can do this or you can do that. This isn't actually play. This is our time being sort of colonized by the digital platforms. And they use that data and they use that attention as a tool to sell to advertisers and to make more money. I, mean, um, I, I think you're right. I mean, in East Germany, they used to give you free beer and you know, beer, and you know, which is an important, you know, part of the part of the process. I mean, there's I think there will always be the commodification of dissent. Social movements, if they get really good, they'll start to sell some advertising with them. Right. That's part of it. 
But I think there's a way out of the panopticon. And I, I think that lots of people, individual actors, can connect with movements to find possibilities to change history. And I'm glad they can. There will always be that tension. I think, I, But I think there's a way out of the panopticon. Either, otherwise, I don't think there's a point in getting out of the door. Uh, but I agree with you. I mean, the, the, the gaming culture, it, it's so rule-bound. I think it can... I think when kid, But when kids make up their own rules... They're creating a new world, and I think that's super important. Yeah, I I, t I agree with that, Ben. That there are there are so many, there's so much potential in the in the form in the gaming as a form, uh, and 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 imagine you know developing imagination through that way. But I also wanted to pick up on something that you were saying, Matthew, about just the kind of idea that play happens outside of work, and how that ser how serious play has to exist. I think within everyone's working day, like what if you're an economist, you, you there has to be an element of play in order to create a kind of world in which we're that's encouraged. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I apologies if I, I I presented it as too black and white. I think sometimes it's important to think of the boundary, but it's it's more of a continuum. In fact, like. Elements of play are forms of resistance within work, you know, like and the his, the history of uh, union struggles, the history of the labor movement, the history of revolutionary resistance all incorporates different forms of play. Michael Burroway, who's a famous uh, theorist of the labor process, talked about uh, making out, which is essentially workers creating their own rules or using the rules of machine production to create more free time and gaming the system against the system. Right. So there, like, play is always this form of resistance, you know, and you know, as as Van Hem says, like, only play can desecrate, open up the possibilities of total freedom. And I think play is a form of resistance within work and outside it. But really, when play is happening within work, often it's not conforming to the imperatives of that work, or or even if it is, it has to fit within like your job description or something, you know, like if an economist is playing with models, like this is creative activity and it's great that they can get paid to do that. Or if I'm thinking really abstractly about work and unpaid labor and, and how this evolves in, in the digital sphere, like this, this is a very, you know, an intellectual activity that is a kind of play. And I, I get, you know, I'm, I have the privilege of being paid a salary that where that incorporates some of it. But this is the sort of overlap of these two things rather than like a pure play. Well, I think that I think that people, any statistician, anybody that's working with the numbers, you say we're going to play with the numbers a little bit. You know, we're you know, going to have an inductive relationship with these numbers for a little bit and something else might happen. The history of science is full of molds falling down from the ceiling of, of random things happening. And if you're so stuck on that one deliberate thing, you might say, oh, let's just clean the mold up. Like, I think it's really important for us to be open to other interpretations of reality. And I think play allows us to that. So that's why I actually, I, I agree with you, Matthew. I agree with you, but I also think the good play can be part of work. And I think that's where creativity and innovation and possibility are developed is within that play space. But it's also can be that space for uh, a realm outside of work. But I think it can be part of work. I don't think, I think I appreciate your point that it continues. Yeah, so I mean, Basically, what it comes down to for me is it's about who has the power to decide what the rules are. So if you're choosing the rules through which you can liberate yourself through play and you happen to be able to earn money from that, great. That's, you know, I think that that's the ideal. But if you can't choose 
the rules, then it's hard to engage in play when when other people are dictating the boundaries of liberation. You know, like um, I often think of the Ulopo group, the, the French writers who, have, who would write, you know, crazy poems and, and books with insane constraints, like not using the lever, letter E, um, as that's a form of play that's very structured, uh, but it's a liberation through constraint, but they're choosing those constraints. And I think in the, in a kind of, you know, liberal market-based capitalism, most of us don't get the privilege of making that choice. Yeah, but I think in order to play, you do need to start off with a certain amount of rules. Like if someone just goes to you, like, go and play, someone who's not so used to having play in their everyday life, it's like, what? Play with with what? Or with, like, they need something. Like I like this idea with saying, speaking without using the letter E or just different ways to give them like an anchor where they can kind of start and grow from and I think play is a is something where you can kind of where you can step outside of producing something or having an end goal it's about the process and about your journey of like what's happening with what you're playing with in, in, a, in a way, of course, there's no escaping it because it, it, somebody is always making the play. And so if, if Avin, you're making the play or Louise, you're making the play, well, then you're not playing in a way. There's, it's a kind of never escape for somebody. Yeah, like you're choreographing the play. Someone has to facilitate it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was going to say that it connects with what Matthew was saying about who has the power to set the rules because in some sense I'm setting the rules in some of the projects that I'm producing and developing and what would it be like if in a range of different work environments the kind of I don't know beginning the kind of team meeting on zoom at the beginning of the day is like okay what are we trying to achieve today here's your you know the task and how is that going to be playful like how can the bosses or the powers that be build play or the, the notion of play into the kind of core everyday you know value of of a work of a workplace like that's really interesting to me because i i agree it's like you can't play unless you know the rules or you know how when how do you get to set the rules yeah i mean free time is essentially the precondition for this kind of play that is is truly free or like maybe un, maybe you can call it unserious play or just play that is as outside of work you need free time to do that and you know for the first time in uh, decades the working time of populations in the in the UK and in in Europe and the the number of hours a week is increasing you know and you've had historic labor movements that recognize free time as essential to human flourishing right whether that be play whether it be just socializing and um, you know family time or just social reproductive activities you know being able to take care of your family and your house I'm very interested in that area where you're not choosing the rules of the game and it is play which is basically in in street activities in protest where you know that the sense of play could be very use usefully employed but you do have to resist some kind of rule formation I'm interested in the rise of that of the way in which play becomes part of uh, the public discourse in bringing people back into the streets to go to a place together, which they, you know, if they're working from home, they don't do that anymore. So the social area is the protest, and the protest is is play. There, this is so the people have always felt a sense of abundance. In Glasgow, there was the there was a, a group a sign that, that said "Funk the police," and they asked somebody why, and he said, 
and it was by a marching band. He said, we need, need a better party. We need a better and uh, a better way of participating together. I think when people feel that taste of freedom just for a second, that's a delicious feeling, right? I mean, and, and I think you want to be part of that. That's the social eros. You want to be, I mean, I think my, my friend Stephen Gendon talks about a really hot guy that he saw getting arrested at the Supreme Court. And he's like, I'm going to get arrested next, right? Like, <laughs> we've all had that feeling. Like, it's like, this is a joyous place to be. And we might actually get something done while we're doing it. But if there isn't a little of that hooking up, that connection, that social arrows, I don't think the movements are going to do what they need to do. The singing in the civil rights movement, the most serious movements always have a little a good movement has some singing it needs to be there. I think that that sounds like a very good place to uh, to stop delicious delicious freedom. I think uh, you know, I like that one very much. So I want to thank you all very much for your ambitious ideas and a nice bit of playing. Uh, Avino D, Ben Shepherd, Matthew Colin, Louise Blackwell. We'll be back with the normal Culture File on Monday at ten past six, and with the Culture File weekly next Saturday at six thirty. Till then, bye now. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. <laughs>